force people to grapple with the full breadth of your humanity. Right. You'll be respected more for it. You'll be more effective at what you do. And that's actually the only way that you'll be able to be novel in any of the work that you're approaching. Yeah. Right? Because it is exactly the intersection of um, identities, ideas that don't belong, yeah. and existing power structures that the, the clashing of those two things is what creates like that that spark, that new idea. Um, what makes art. What, what makes art. JT, thank you first for even agreeing to sit down to do this. I know I had to come across the pond to get to you, but it's fine. It just ended up working out. But today, I really want to just capture a lot about your story, right? Again, New Traditional, the platform is oriented to really talk through people that are at intersections, whether it be creative, professionally, personally, and ultimately what those inflection points mean for the next step. So, you know, you as a road scholar, as a person before any of that, but also <laughs> as a musician, where does your story start? And where are you now? Yeah. Um, first off, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, my story starts back home, of mm -hmm. course, as it does with anybody. I'm from Northeast Portland, uh, specifically King Alberta, which is uh, a neighborhood that historically has been home to the, the vast majority of the small black population of mm -hmm. the city. So I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black, uh, in a city, in a state that was predominantly not. <laughs> uh, and I grew up bouncing back and forth, kind of ping-ponging around these different corners uh, of this really odd, eccentric place. And I think that journey uh, was a, a really definitive one for me. Once you left Portland, uh, what was it like for you after that? Was it straight to college? Was there like a year between where you're deciding kind of what was the thought or intuition behind that next step? Yeah. College, uh, as we know, isn't for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So my journey to college was um, actually an odd one. Uh, I grew up playing basketball, and mm -hmm. my neighborhood has actually produced a lot of um, a lot of really talented basketball players mm -hmm. who played in the NBA, from Damon Stoudemire, Ime Udoka, Terrell Brandon, Jesus. Terrence Jones, Terrence Ross, and that was something that I tried to carry through through my childhood, mm -hmm. and it's something that really defined my childhood in a lot of ways. Um, so in high school, my main priority was not school in any sense; it was hooping. I wanted right. to be uh, an NBA basketball player, and I wanted to go to College, not uh, necessarily for an education, but more so as a, a stepping stone to that ultimate goal, which mm -hmm. is playing in the NBA. So, as you might imagine, my, my focus was elsewhere. Right? I didn't perform too well in school. Mm -hmm. um, but I was doing really well basketball-wise. A couple of things shook out. The, the short end of it is I ended up getting injured. Um, when I got injured, I came back too early, re-aggravated the injury. There were schools that had offered me scholarship, uh, full-ride scholarships that then came and saw me play. I was playing on an aggravated injury. Um, like you're just not the same player you were anymore. Rescinded the scholarships. Um, and then I was left in a situation where um, I basically had to, to figure another way out of, out of my scenario. I just grew up with my mom. So um, didn't really have money to, to go to school. It was like, you gonna finance your own education. Um, that, that was the, the expectation. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if I hadn't been able to, she would have made something happen. That's the way my mother is. But um, that was a burden I placed on myself mm -hmm. and that our circumstances placed on me. So I had to turn back to, to school. Um, when you're being heavily recruited as an athlete, your test scores are effectively public information. Mm -hmm. So I scored really well on uh, my SATs, but my grades were horrible. I had like a 2.8 GPA. I had Ds and Fs on my transcript. 
Um, so all these schools, uh, high-ranking academic schools that previously thought I was out of their league basketball-wise, uh, once the diminished basketball version of me came onto the scene <laughs> playing on this aggravated ankle, uh, they were like, oh, yeah, we can get this dude now. He's, <laughs> He's definitely in our age. So um, they would start recruiting me. First thing they do is you talk to like an Ivy League school as they request your transcript. Mm -hmm. So they send me all these transcript requests. I'm like, oh, wow, you could definitely play here. See my transcript. Never talk to me again. Only school that stuck it out with me was actually Yale. Mm -hmm. um, they effectively said, listen, there's no way you can get in on these grades um, next year. This was my junior summer going into my senior year, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there is a way, you know, um, an unorthodox path that you might be able to take yeah. if you so choose. Yeah. Uh, it's a risk. There's no guarantees on any end. You're going to have to kind of perform your ass off. But if you're able to do it, there's a chance. Yeah. At that point, I was thinking, all right, I'm either going to community college for basketball or I'm doing this, right? So I chose that path. And effectively what it required me to do, uh, I had to go into my counseling office, convince my, co uh, my college counselor in high school to track me into a full, I went to an IB school, full IB courses. I had been tracked into all level lower courses with the exception of one class mm -hmm. um, because of the way I performed historically throughout middle school, elementary school, into high school. Um, and then I had to get all A's in every single one of my classes. The grades would be weighted. It would offset, um, you know, the, the the bad grades on my GPA or on my transcript. And then I also had to retake all the courses I got D's or F's in mm -hmm. um, and get those grades voided off my transcript so they'd be factored out of my GPA. So I was able to do that over the course of my senior year. Right. Um, I didn't get anything but A's and full IB. That resuscitated my GPA to a certain extent. And um, with that, they were able to give me or help me get into um, an elite boarding school on the, the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So I went to Choke Rosemary Hall for a fifth year high school. So I graduated uh, from my four year high school, public high school in Portland. And then I did a fifth year high school. Um, and that year was explicitly for school. And that was brutal. That was like one of the toughest years of my life. I felt like I was thrown into an entirely different orbit, an entirely different universe. Uh, I thought I had been around wealth before. And I was like, I'm comfortable being around white people because I grew up in this white city, right? In a black neighborhood, but going to school in a white, <laughs> in a white environment, right? So right. I know how to navigate this, these people, right? Right. Um, I got to that school and very quickly realized that was not the case. Chump man. change. Yes, chump change, man. I'm telling you, you're going to school with people who own like the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas, uh, people whose fathers are senators, people whose uh, mothers are billionaires, yeah. um, like ancestral wealth. I had never been in an environment where people were so comfortable flaunting that, or, like putting that in other people's faces. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really shut down. I'm a very social person. That yeah. was the first time in my life I actually really shut down. Um, but it was good in a sense because, man, that was the most difficult academic experience I ever had. Yeah. That was harder than Yale. That was harder than Oxford. Definitely harder than my high school back home. Uh, and I don't think if I hadn't had that year, I would have been able to perform as well as I did once I did get to college. And what was it like in that time? You mentioned that you felt like you, in a way, had to compartmentalize right, yeah. in order to make it through. What did that feel like? Um, basketball was a was a feature of my identity, right? Mm -hmm. It was it was something that I used to define myself. Oh, who are you? Like, what's your name? Oh, my name's JT Flowers. What do you do? I'm a hooper. Like, that's how I define myself. Mm -hmm. So, straying from basketball meant straying from a part of myself. Right. And stepping into that world 
academically, socially meant grappling with parts of myself that I had, you know, prior to that point, not been forced to to consider or grapple with. Uh, the way I spoke was a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. The way I I looked was a disadvantage. The way I dressed was a disadvantage. I remember my first day at uh, at Choke, a dude by the name of Colin Lord, C. Lord, we called him. He was um, uh, an administrator who basically was responsible for making sure kids like me didn't fall through the cracks at mm-hmm. Choke. Uh, he showed up to my dorm with a, a plastic like grocery bag. Uh, and I was like, what's in that bag? He's like, yeah, you got 10 shirts. I didn't have any college shirts mm-hmm. to go to class in, um, and we had a dress code, mm-hmm. right? So, I, like, I'm coming from where I, where I come from. I wore t-shirts and hoodies every day. Right. <laughs> I wore t-shirts easy, and hoodies. Easy, yeah. I maybe copped a cardigan to to feel like I was flying <laughs> fly, like home or right? something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. that was probably stolen and still had an H and M tag on it. Like he was like he was a bag of 16, 10, 16 shirts that you could wear mm-hmm. on a daily basis, right? Um, that man for for our ball there, he bought me my first suit. He bought me my first pair of like wingtips. Um, so I had to adjust on a cultural level, uh, on an academic level. I, I felt like man, I was sitting in class. I swear I spent probably sixty percent of my time on my new laptop. No lie, just googling words that people were saying, mm-hmm. looking up words in a dictionary. Mm-hmm. I swear. It was very unsettling. I felt like I was less intelligent than every single person around me. Uh, I soon came to realize that that wasn't true uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, it wasn't just about compartmentalizing. I think uh, initially I thought that in order to survive in that environment, I would have to sever entire parts of myself. Mm. Um, And I think I actually did go through with that in certain ways. Uh, And much of my journey since has been getting back to me right? Um, undoing all these things that I tried to teach myself as survival mechanisms um, and just being comfortable being um, wholly and completely myself unapologetically. Yeah, a lot of what I've seen in my story, even in kind of in just speaking to you in the few moments that we have, is that a lot of what we learn, right, in institutional settings, that growth really comes from unlearning that, like yeah. doing all the work to fit yeah. in doing all the work to kind of be seen yeah. and then to have to come to a point where, you know, it's like, am I going to be me or am I going to be a little bit of me and some of that? Or do you just kind of go full throttle with it? And yeah. it sounded like Choke was an inflection point, right? Or yeah. a point that you had to go full throttle. You said that you felt like you had to sever parts of yourself. What's that process like? Was it something that you were just making decisions based off of what you knew then or that it's something that you find that was crucial to you being who you are today? Yeah, um, what I say is the right move? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've done since making it out of situations like the one I came out of uh, is I spent a lot of time trying to help other kids who are, who are similarly positioned. And the main thing I try to communicate is that you don't have to do what I did in order to navigate these institutions mm-hmm. effectively, in order to be successful, whatever that means, yeah. in, in these spaces. I was so self-conscious even about the way I spoke. Um, there's a funny ass interview of me when I was in high school. It was like, uh, they caught me out there at a basketball game. And the way I'm speaking, yo, like, you could tell exactly where I'm from, right? But I, I knew I spoke like that. So when I got into choke, no lie, like, you, you asked what that process is like. Um, it's a torturous one. I literally would go into my basement, turn on the TV at night, 
watch, I started watching the news. I was like, oh shit, I don't know anything about anything. I need to start watching CNN or something. Uh, and we had just got cable. I was like, okay, I'm lit. I'm gonna watch Anderson Cooper 360. I'm gonna literally watch the man, the way this man speaks. Well, Blitzer, my man. Yeah. Well, Blitzer, and I'm no lie. I'm gonna pair it back the, mm. the way they're they're speaking. I'm gonna record myself uh, on something so I can hear how how I sound, and then I'm going to correct you you know my speech patterns so that I sound more quote unquote articulate. Really, what I was saying is so I. So I speak standard, like white American English better um, so that people will respect my ideas. One thing I realized in high school, people really thought I was a dumbass. So um, when I transferred into full ID, right. um, I'll be in classes with all these smart kids, but they had gone to school with me for three, four years, right? Um, they really did think I was like a complete idiot. And I was like, oh, that's the basketball player. Like that dude is a fucking clown. Um, so what I had to do was... Um, I think I came to realize very quickly that my ideas would be dismissed in that context, mm -hmm. not because they weren't substantive enough, right. but because they weren't worded in a way that was accessible for um, the powers that be, you right. know, given that particular power structure. So I was like, okay, I have to adhere to that more closely. What I came to realize later is that the proper way to do that would have been um, to force the powers that be to grapple with the fact mm -hmm. that they're dismissing my ideas based on the way that they're formatted rather than uh, based on their substance, right. that would have been the proper critique. That would have been the proper way to go about it. That's what I try to encourage young people to do. I also don't fault my younger self for doing that because I didn't really have any guidance or anybody to show me any different yeah. way. Yeah, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't fun by any sense. It's something that I look back on uh, with a great deal of shame. Right. I don't think uh, we as black people should ever be ashamed of where we come from mm -hmm. or who we are or, or how we are. Uh, and we especially shouldn't bend parts of our identity or our humanity in order to be more palatable to um, to whiteness right. or to the powers that be. And I think that's very much something that um, I ended up uh, succumbing to. Right. Yeah. And now I'm pivoting to that, and we're going to go into access next, but just in a sentence or two, right, to kind of a younger demographic listening to this that may be at those points where they're like, okay, well, I'm about to get into this top school or like mm -hmm. I have to make that next big decision and compartmentalizing many times may seem like the only way to do so yeah. or to make it through. What would you say to them? Force people to grapple with the full breadth of your humanity. Right. You'll be respected more for it. You'll be more effective at what you do. And that's actually the only way that you'll be able to be novel in any of the work that you're approaching, yeah, right? Because it is exactly the intersection of um, identities, ideas that don't belong, yeah. and existing power structures that the, the clashing of those two things is what creates like that that spark, that new idea. Um, what makes art? What, what makes art, mm -hmm. right? So my, my word to them would be to, to force people to grapple with that um, and to understand that even though it might feel particularly difficult, at certain points, in the long run, they'll benefit immensely from it, and their work will. Um, well, shit, sometimes they might not benefit. <laughs> no, I think that's real. I think like, that's important to highlight. Like, yeah. Sometimes we might not benefit from it, but I, I do think that um, it's a question about the way you want to live life. Mm -hmm. um, and I know sometimes we don't have the privilege of taking that approach, yeah. right? I know I've had instances where it's like, okay, i got to make enough money to send home because I know my mom's struggling with this or that. And, I don't have time to be risking 
this opportunity, right? I need to do what I came here to do, whatever it takes. If it means cutting off a part of myself, I got to cut off a part of myself yeah. and do this. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I've accrued privilege, right. uh, that kind of, that defiance is something that's become easier and easier to, yeah. to maintain. So, yeah, I would encourage people to do that uh, with a caveat, right? And that caveat is understand your circumstances as well, right? And don't fault yourself for having to respond to those circumstances. Okay. So from East Portland to Yale to basketball through the IV program to Rhodes, talk to us briefly about what that segue was, like what the thinking was behind it, less so about what it felt like than what the mentality was or the mindset behind it was. When I got into Yale after my year at boarding school, I was a little bit more familiar with the way that that whole game worked. Uh, And I had been exposed to things that I had never heard of previously. I looked up something. In my mind, I was with one of my friends, and it's Carla. We were sitting there um, chilling that summer afterwards. And I was like, man, you wouldn't even believe the things these kids value. Like, well, I'm from, like people value like hoop scholarships, or people who go pro at this, or people who make it big in, in this field. Like, these people literally value academic scholarships as if they're like Olympic trophies, man. Uh, she was like, yo, what's the biggest, what's the biggest scholarship? I was like, I don't know, let's look it up. No mm-hmm. lie, we Google like most famous scholarship or most prestigious scholarship on earth. It was like Rose Scholarship. I was like, that's it. I'm going to win that. That's it. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to win that. I swear yeah, I'm going to win that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to win that because how fucking crazy would that be to come from where I came from to get to Yale in the way that I, I got there, right? I swear, when I was uh, going through the application process, I looked at, uh, you know, those like college confidential websites. I was like, lowest GPA ever to get into Yale University. And five, they had like, like a bell five, curve. I know, yeah. <laughs> For real. I was like, oh shit, I'm below the bottom point on this on this yeah. curve. Yeah. My GPA is lower than anybody that their data has ever tracked into this university, yeah? yeah. So how crazy would it be to go from being that person mm-hmm. to a Rhodes Scholar? That's, that's my mission when I get there. Um, that's my mission when I get there on a, at the level of ambition, mm-hmm. at the level of what I wanted to do on it, um, how I wanted to spend my time. I wanted to make that space more accessible for, for kids, uh, for kids like us, because yeah. I understood how crippling um, that lack of accessibility was for me at Choke. I didn't want other people to have to feel that way mm-hmm. um, in a space that has, that's far more consequential in terms of, you know, your long-term trajectory. Like, if you're able to navigate that space effectively, you can really make some things happen, not for the next four years of your life, but for the next 40. So um, that was my mission on a, on a, on a broader level. Okay, I'm, I'm proving a point to myself here. Um, and it's not something I believed I could do because I didn't think I was as smart as any of those kids. I didn't think I belonged in that space. I was like, I finessed the system to get me in here. I was just it's lucky enough down. to trick these motherfuckers. Let's all <laughs> The almighty finesse. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. the almighty finesse. Yeah. I think that's a yeah. great, uh, a great tagline right there. Yeah. Uh, the, oh my, I like that right there. The almighty finesse. Uh, yeah, man. So uh, the way I approached my time at Yale was um, was twofold. It was like, okay, I'm here to prove something to myself on a personal level. I'm also here to make this campus more accessible mm-hmm. for people like me. 
and I committed my energy, as much of my energy as I could possibly muster to that latter goal. And I think the fulfillment of those personal ambitions came out of me doing something that I was genuinely passionate about. And that's all the work I did on campus. And a lot of this, as I've seen it, and I'm sure you may be able to attest to also, is that the more that you move or veer towards what you call a crew privilege or just kind of being in spaces that you never saw yourself as being able to or suitable for, that you are in a way forcibly isolating yourself. One, because yeah. you have to, because the people and kind of a lot of where you come from, a lot of that home base, even if it's not literally home, that home-like familiarity, yeah, yeah. won't get it, right. can't get it, because they haven't seen it. Right. Not that they're not capable, it's just not in their purview. Yeah. What does that isolation feel like for you? Did it feel isolating, and how did you work through it? Um, yeah, it did feel isolating in a way. There, there were experiences I just couldn't really talk to anybody in my close family life about. Um, right, my mom didn't go to college. Um, she took night classes for a little bit and then mm -hmm. ended up um, deciding to, to just go work instead. Uh, same thing with my grandmother. Those are my two family members I'm closest to. Uh, yeah, yeah, it felt extraordinarily isolated, but I do think that I was very lucky in the sense that I fell into a community of mm -hmm. people who come from, who came from very similar backgrounds. Right. So a lot of my closest friends uh, at the university uh, were also experiencing that same type of isolation. Mm -hmm. And it was through that group solidarity that I was able to make sense of that experience and, and navigate it. I think uh, that's one of the things I'm actually very grateful to that campus for. I don't think that exists everywhere. I was lucky to fall into a space, to stumble into a space where, where that did exist, um, relative to how that relates to back home. Because they know how I came up, right? I came up very visibly as somebody who was good at, at basketball in particular in that city. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very visible thing at the high school level. Um, so I think people saw my full, the full arc of my trajectory and felt pride for me, uh, people from my community, right? They felt pride for me. So it wasn't one of those things where I come back home and people are like, oh man, you saw out of touch, you know? You don't think you like oh, who, who you think you is like you not switched on it like it was, it was none of that it was like yo talk to us about how that is oh what yo like you got to sit in class with that I don't even know who that is. who is that uh, and then no I'm so serious we got to have, yeah. we started having conversations about this this stuff and um, I never felt completely severed from that world because of the space that I had walked into right and I was very intentional about trying to make sure that I didn't sever myself from that world that said I mean. Being 3,000 miles away has an effect, right? It's, it's hard to maintain relationships. It takes its toll at the level of relationships, but in terms of that visceral connection with a place and its people, I don't think that's ever left me. Even all the way out here in England, I don't think that ever leaves me. I still feel that same throbbing in my chest when I think about the concept of home and the people that, that comprise uh, the place that I call home. What do you believe in? What do I believe in? Fundamentally, I believe in people. I believe in, in building a redemptive society, uh, a society that makes room for people to err and to, to fuck up, to fall short, and then, you know, steps in and provides those people with the resources, with the support, with the love and care, the community that they need in order to, to grow, to heal, uh, and to move forward. Mm. I think that's probably the most fundamental concept I believe in, redemption. Back on Sunday, July 5th, part two.